Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back for another edition of the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. We're going to be talking about Week 9 action before we dive into Week 10 against the spread. Um, we'll evaluate some of our best wins and worst losses of the week. We'll you know, look at our crow that deserves to be eaten. We'll look at some games against the spread. We'll have a grand old time. We'll even talk about some food and some drink. Always fun to be with, here with you, John. How are you doing this week? Man, I'm doing great. Um, not nearly as much crow to eat this week for either of us, so that's good. And uh, a lot of lot to talk about, a lot to get into, a lot of upset still happening. Uh, everything kind of got shifted on its head this week, Zach. Yeah, it really did. So with everything that did happen crazy all across the land, what was your best win of the weekend? You know, you could characterize this, and this typically happens when one team has a best win. You could easily flip it on its head and call it the worst loss for another program. And this week, for me, the best win was Kansas State, 48-41 over Oklahoma. I don't think anyone saw this coming. Um, I had talked about, uh, on the website at least, that I thought Kansas State would be competitive in this game. I thought the 23.5-point spread was far too high. Uh, That's just too well-coached of a team on their home field. Oklahoma coming off, you know, could easily be looking past the Wildcats. And I don't know if that's what happened or if, you know, the Sooners defense just regressed back to the mean after kind of playing above their heads in the first seven games because Kansas State really did whatever they want on offense. Skylar Thompson was unstoppable. We had four rushing touchdowns and they built a, you know, they built a 48 to 23 lead early in the fourth quarter and then held on for dear life as Jalen Hurts and the Sooners offense fought back at the end and very nearly won that game uh kind of controversial call at the end on that onside kick pretty pretty close I think that call probably could have gone either way I'm not sure if it was indisputable evidence that that ball hit the Oklahoma player I think it probably did but pretty close uh it was a really cool onside kick um so you know huge win for Chris for Chris Kleinman and Kansas State uh they're five and two now just much better overall this year than they were last year in Bill Snyder's final season and really signature win for him. Uh, Kansas State's a program I think that's really on the rise and for them to get that one over Oklahoma was huge. Yeah, I really agree. I wrote about that game this weekend for Saturday Blitz and really what I saw is Jalen Hurts is being depended on way too much for that offense. You know, he's an otherworldly talent. But at the same time, you have to have something other than him making everything happen for you on the field. And the running game just isn't there right now for the Sooners in a way that they need it dependably to be. And as you said, the defense could only mask so much of that over the course of the season. But Oklahoma had some some interesting games before this one kind of all fell apart for them. So I I totally agree. That was a huge win for that Kansas State team. And it'll be interesting to see how far they take it this season. Because as you said, they are 5-2 right now. And the way things are going in the Big 12, they could still technically be in the hunt with a tiebreaker over Oklahoma to boot. So yeah, I agree. For me, the best win this weekend happened in Big Ten country, specifically at the Big House, where number 19 Michigan didn't just win against Notre Dame. They won big, I think, you know, 45-14, a 31-point victory when they were favored at home by one and a half points. Uh, I really thought that a Wolverine secondary that rated high in the country, you know, their pass defense was good, as I mentioned, coming into this game, but I didn't expect them to be this good. Obviously, the rain helped, so Ian Book went 8 of 25 for 73 yards and a touchdown, and the rain obviously helps some of those stats for the defense, but... Notre Dame's run game also got bogged down. They only, you know, racked up 47 yards on 31 carries. So one and a half yards a carry just isn't going to cut it in the rain when you have to get yardage. 
And that's what Michigan did. Their running game really stepped it up big when they needed it most. Hassan Haskins had 149 yards, ran for more than seven yards a carry. Uh, Zach Charbonnet punched in two rushing touchdowns. And, you know, Shea Patterson and Dylan McCaffrey, they didn't need to throw a bunch, but when they did, they were effective. They threw three touchdown passes, no interceptions, and... It's interesting because it really turns around the Harbaugh narrative and, and just, you know, from week to week we get this soap opera in Ann Arbor where, it, what you know, is Jim Harbaugh getting his exit strategy ready for the NFL to, you know, he's the giant slayer of Notre Dame and there's your signature win against the top 10 team. And it, it's funny because... As great as it is getting a win against the Fighting Irish, it's kind of fool's gold because it doesn't do anything for their shot in the Big Ten standings, and it's a signature win, but it's not going to help them in any of the big narratives that they were shooting for at the beginning of the season. Right. I mean, even after this win, it's a long shot that the Wolverines have any opportunity to win the Big Ten this year after already dropping two conference games. So... The narrative, no matter what you're looking at, they lose to Ohio State again, then they're 9-3, and three, and they're right about where they've been every single year under Harbaugh, it feels like, without being able to move forward. But I think this was a statement game for Harbaugh and Michigan. You know, a lot of people have criticized his offensive choices, but Michigan played Jim Harbaugh football on Saturday night. You know, they dominated in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Like you said, they held Notre Dame to only – 47 rushing yards on one and a half yards per carry and they racked up over 300 yards rushing on the other side of the ball uh so that's what you want in a rainy day is you want to be able to pound the ball on the ground michigan didn't turn the ball over notre dame had two turnovers so yeah huge win for harbaugh huge win for michigan kind of a must win for for him uh, and his job security there in ann arbor it's interesting, too, because what does that do for Brian Kelly? We keep, you know, that's a quiet narrative that, <coughs> excuse me, that's a quiet narrative that kind of got pushed back at the beginning of this season as Notre Dame did well again. But it, it, it's going to be interesting to see in the coming weeks if we don't start to hear some rumblings about Brian Kelly now that they've fallen out of the top 10 and the Fighting Irish basically have no shot at the college football playoff anymore themselves. So, Yeah, it's certainly fair. I think the schedule sets up well enough that Notre Dame should probably win out unless they're upset by somebody. So, you know, they should still end up around 10-2, and two, which would probably be good enough for a New Year's Six berth. Yeah. But at this point, that's about the the highest they have to shoot for is a Cotton Bowl berth against whoever makes it out of the group of five. So on that note, that was a really bad loss for Notre Dame now that I mention it as the best win for Michigan. As you said, these things can always flip either way. So that said, what's your worst loss of the weekend? Did you see the ending of the Texas Tech-Kansas game on Saturday? I mean, I think it's easily Texas Tech to me just by how, not necessarily that they lost to Kansas because I don't think um, they were a much better team than Kansas. I think they're probably right around the same level as the Jayhawks this year. But the way that game ended might be the worst defeat I've ever seen in all my years of watching college football, kick six included. You've got Texas Tech lining, or Kansas lining up for a game-winning field goal. Um, I don't remember from how far, about 40 yards out, I believe. And Liam Jones kicks it. Texas Tech blocks the kick, ostensibly sending the game into overtime at that point because it was only 13 seconds or so left on the clock. (laughs) And then Douglas Coleman inexplicably on the run back tries to pitch it back to another one of his teammates. It's fumbled. Kansas jumps on it gets another attempt at the win, this time from only 32 yards out, and he drills it to beat Texas Tech. Just, if you're a Red Raider fan watching that, you've seen Texas Tech lose a lot of games over the years, some more heartbreaking than others. You had to be sick to your stomach watching that game. Just inexplicable ending for the Red Raiders. I've never seen anything like that in watching college football. I don't know if anything else rings a bell to you with that, Zach. It really was one of the most improbable, crazy endings that it has happened in a long while. 
and uh, yeah, I I don't think for uh, sheer dollar value, my my worst loss nearly steps up to that in terms of the heartbreak of you know going from getting that game saving block to completely bungling the execution thereafter. So, um, but at the same time, the loss that I ended up looking at had really big implications, both for the school itself in terms of rankings, as well as its conference as a whole. And that's Texas at number 15, losing by 10 at TCU. Um, Texas took their third loss of the year, fell from number 15 all the way out of the AP Top 25. They fell nine spots to number 24 in the coaches' poll, but really kind of holding on by a thread there. The Longhorns were up 17-13 at halftime, and then they just crumbled in the second half, gave away 21 unanswered in the third and fourth quarters. And, you know, Sam Ellinger was shut down. He only completed 22 of 48. Yes, he got his yardage, but he threw four really costly interceptions at various points throughout the game from early to late that really just sparked this game and put it out of reach for the Longhorns. And so at the same time, freshman quarterback Max Dugan outplayed Ellinger, 19 of 27, 273, had the same number of touchdowns, but three fewer interceptions, just played a more disciplined game. And now Texas, you know, not just to say that they've fallen out of the polls, but they're fourth in the Big 12 standings, and they still have to play both Iowa State and Baylor on the road. So... It's going to be really hard for them even to get to the Big 12 championship game, much less have a chance at redeeming this season. Yeah, and you talk about a narrative forming, too, with Tom Herman, because, you know, they kind of broke through last year and won the Sugar Bowl, but we questioned all last year if that Texas team was really as good as a lot of pollsters seem to believe, just because analytically they didn't stack up with most of the elite teams in college football. Uh, and then kind of proven right this year with largely the same team coming back, another five and three through eight games. Uh, we thought something was fishy with that spread. One of the things we talked about last week, I believe we both picked TCU to win the game solely based on Vegas begging you to take Texas and us knowing better than to do that last week after years of being burned um, in such games. So the other thing, like you said, Max Dugan, like, TCU's finally found a quarterback after last year, really struggling all year at the position, struggling again this year. If Gary Patterson's found his quarterback, this TCU team could be a real sleeper the rest of the season. Undoubtedly. Shifting gears before we uh, look at individual players, what was the biggest surprise of the weekend for you? Has there been a bigger enigma in college football this year than Missouri I mean, you've got a Missouri team that's dropped games now to Kentucky, to um, Vanderbilt, and to Wyoming, but then has just absolutely looked brilliant in other games, like rolling past Ole Miss and Troy and South Carolina and West Virginia, looking unstoppable in those games. But good grief, if this team has to play on the road, it's all bets are off. They're now 5-0 and at home, 0-3 in road games so far this year. Just can't seem to figure it out. Not stunned by the fact that Kentucky beat Missouri, but just stunned by the margin of victory. You know, Kentucky winning 29-7. to This is a Wildcats team that doesn't have a quarterback. Literally doesn't have a quarterback on the roster right now. Everybody's hurt. Lynn Bowden's been uh, playing quarterback for the team. The star wide receiver's been taking all the snaps at quarterback. So just stunning to me that Missouri, and again, weather was another factor, a, lot, a large factor in a lot of games across the country this weekend but they both played in the same weather and it's just it's wild to me that Missouri can look so good one week and so bad the next I was stunned that they were only able to manage seven points on offense against Kentucky but simultaneously stunned that they gave up 29 against the Wildcats team they can't throw a pass yeah pretty much it it, it really is a Jekyll and Hyde team there in Columbia this year and it, it, as you said, it, 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 it's pretty easy to figure out that that road-home split is a big part of that 
that variance for them. Whatever it is when they're away from home, I, I don't know why they can't figure that that little gem out, but it, it's not working. And honestly, for me, that it was really the point spread, the point differential that threw my biggest surprise as well. And that was UCF 63, Temple 21. You know, I, I thought UCF could win this game. They definitely have the talent on that team to be as prolific on offense as they have been in the past. So we've seen, you know, Temple play really good defense so far this year. They've they've played well against Memphis. They've played well against, um, you know, pretty much everybody they've gone up against. They have a couple of quality wins against Power 5 teams on their resume. And to see UCF do what they did really kind of shows me that they're starting to get their swagger back after losing two games against Pitt and against Cincinnati. Otis Anderson got the bulk of the carries for the team, and he ran for 205 yards and a touchdown on 17 carries. Ventavius Thompson added a couple of rushing touchdowns, and eight different nights scored either a rushing or a receiving score. Like, just to see the depth of scoring on that team. And, you know, Dylan Gabriel getting a couple of three touchdown passes, 218 passing yards. He was under 50% passing, but he took his shots. And, you know, we also saw Daryl Mack come in and get a touchdown as well. The thing is, is Temple was down only 28-21 at the half, and then, just as we saw in several games this this weekend, fell apart in the third quarter, just gave up 35 unanswered to UCF after, after returning to the field from the locker room, and what happened to the Owls? You know, the past couple weeks, they've gone from being that team that looks right there in the hunt with Cincinnati for the the AAC East to sort of an also-ran, and now UCF is right back there pushing in that hunt, hoping for Cincinnati to fall a couple of times. Yeah, it's been stunning. I mean, that was one of the lines. I felt pretty good about Temple covering a double-digit spread. I thought Central Florida would win that game, but I was shocked to see that final score, like, I think obviously people have been underrating the Knights after those couple of losses, but it's easy to forget that those two losses came by a combined five or four points. You know, they lost by one to Pitt and three to Cincinnati. So two games that could have easily swung in the other direction, and then the narrative's completely different. Yeah, exactly. They're the head of the group of five race if they, they those two games go the opposite direction, as you said. They're undefeated. They're once again kings and kings on top of the mountain so speaking of you know kings of the mountain let's look at some individual performances before we go to break who did you like for your offensive game ball this week john i talked briefly about him just a minute ago i think you've got to mention how impressive lynn bowden's been for kentucky just the fact that He's a wide receiver, and he's been tasked with playing quarterback after the injuries the Wildcats have had at the position, something he hasn't done since high school. Um, Credit Mark Stoops as well for figuring out what works. They're pretty much just running the ball. But there's been no player in the country that's had a higher usage in recent weeks than Lynn Bowden. Um, He's doing everything for that offense. He's put Kentucky on his back. And by doing so, the Wildcats are still very much alive for a bowl game. Uh, And especially with the way their schedule sets up, they should be able to claw out six wins, despite the fact that they've had no quarterback in recent weeks, that they've had to rely on him. Um, But one of my favorite stats I saw on Twitter this weekend was now Lynn Bowden is the only, this is via Corey Price on Twitter, uh, Lynn Bowden is the only FBS player since 2000 with at least 1,600 kickoff return yards, 1,300 receiving yards, 600 rushing yards and 200 passing yards in their career. So he's done something that no other player in the country has done in almost 20 years. That's how impressive of a season he's having. Um, he had over 200 rushing yards and a pair of touchdowns against Missouri. Also completed three passes for 54 yards just to keep the defense honest. So I had to shout out Bowden this week. I think he's been just an absolute stud for the Wildcats. He's 
currently the team's leading rusher and still the team's leading receiver, despite the fact that he hasn't played receiver in several weeks now. And now he's third on the team in passing with an outside shot of um, leading the team in all three categories. Probably be difficult to get the passing numbers up enough without another receiver jumping ahead of him. But just honestly, an insane streak he's been on. Uh, and it's really very, really impressed with how, what he's done for Kentucky this year. I love it. Yeah, that's a great pick. Just Bowden has been so versatile and he's stepped up to the challenge every step of the way. And that's really all you can ask for from, from a player is that willingness to give it a shot and really show confidence and, you know, showing the confidence in the player is what brings out that confident side and playing to his strengths, as you said, is a testament to the entire staff. For me, I had to. I I I looked close to home for my game ball this week. Honestly, um, Oregon barely survived their the visit to Autzen Stadium by Washington State. They kicked that last second field goal to win thirty seven thirty five. But I I have to give my game ball to C J Verdell, the running back who just absolutely pummeled the Cougars. Uh, ran 23 times for 257 yards and three touchdowns. And this was the first time since Kenyon Barner in 2012 that a duck rushed for 250 or more yards on the field. Uh, in the process, Verdella also tied LaMichael James for fourth on the single-game rushing list at UO with his 257 yards. Uh, what was also cool about it is Verdell added four receptions for 56 yards, put himself over 300 all-purpose yards, and accounted for 57% of the offense out of the backfield. He was just an absolute stud every time he touched the ball, and he was a huge reason why Oregon was able to keep the chains moving, and even when you know they didn't score, it, you know, especially on a day where... Justin Herbert didn't throw a touchdown pass for the first time in forever. It, you know, Verdell really came through in the clutch. And so that's where I send my game ball this week. That's a great pick. I covered that game for Saturday Blitz. I knew you were on pins and needles watching the ending there with the Cougars kind of battling back. But Verdell was a monster all night long. Washington State had no answer for him uh, no matter what. Oregon decided to do with him. We're handing it off or whether throwing a swing pass out to him. Uh, that's a great pick. Zach, I'll let you go first this time on defense. Who are you giving your defensive game ball to? You know, so as much as I had to celebrate that Oregon victory, I also had to, you know, wallow in another Wisconsin loss for the second week in a row. And a big reason why Wisconsin could do absolutely nothing on offense was defensive end Chase Young. Uh, you heard about him all all weekend long on you know uh, post game shows on Sports Center you know wherever you were listening or watching or reading about college football this weekend you you definitely heard about Chase Young's performance but that said he deserves a game ball this week because he destroyed Jack Cohn all game long had four sacks by himself. Five total tackles for loss, six solo tackles all around. He was a one-man wrecking crew. Even when he didn't get a tackle, he was right there with pressure way too often. You know, exposed a lot of holes in what's usually a rock-solid Badgers offensive line. And did it pretty much single-handedly. And so, as much as I hate to to celebrate a Buckeyes performance on a weekend where they beat Wisconsin. I, I can't overlook his performance. I think Chase Young should be legitimately in the Heisman conversation at this point in the season. He would be in my Heisman top five if anyone gave a crap about that sort of thing for me. Um, I think he's as good as any player in the country this year. It's crazy because Ohio State always seems to have that dominant edge rusher, whether it's Nick or Joey Bosa or now Chase Young. Uh, and I think he's better than both Bosa's. And that's crazy to say because we just watched on Sunday, for those who watch the NFL, Nick Bosa dominated for the 49ers on Sunday just to show how great he is as well. 
but Chase Young might be on a whole nother level. I mean, he's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so that's a great pick. Definitely the performance of the weekend on that side. Um, I went with Chaz Surratt from North Carolina, the linebacker who was a monster all game long, but also made the game ceiling interception for North Carolina on the goal line when Cutcliffe called that handoff to the running back jump pass that, you know, was actually caught me off guard. At least I wasn't expecting it. Did not catch North Carolina's defense or Surratt off guard. He makes the interception to go along that sealed the deal and puts North Carolina in a real position to potentially win the ACC coastal division. They're very much alive in that race. We'll talk about that a little further later in a big game for them this weekend, but he added 12 tackles, nine of which were solo and he had a sack to go along with the interception. So he had a huge performance to help the Tar Heels beat the hated Blue Devils. Yeah, Surratt is a great choice. Really versatile pick. Um, So on that note, everybody, uh, we're going to wrap up week nine for now. Uh, Take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be diving into some week 10 action against the spread. We'll talk to you on the other side. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. We're ready to dive in and talk about some Week 10 action against the spread. We've picked out five big games specifically to look at in this segment, starting with the big top 10 matchup of the weekend between number 8 Georgia and number 6 Florida in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. So Florida comes into this as a five-point underdog, um, even though both of the, you know, Florida comes in ranked higher, and, you know, they're playing in Jacksonville, so this is neutral site. Do you think that's a, a, a fair line that's set there, John? Uh, probably so, just based on how people are probably going to bet it. Um, this was a close spread last year, and Georgia kind of rolled over Florida in this game a year ago. But, man, I'm just so unconvinced of the Bulldogs right now. Their best win of the season was at home against Notre Dame, but I think it's pretty clear now that the Irish weren't quite as much uh, as they were hyped to be, and that game was really close um, in Athens. And just in recent weeks, Georgia's offense has struggled mightily to do anything. Um, You know, they lost to South Carolina, and then in bad weather against Kentucky, they only managed 21 points. Uh, The offense has really been stuck in quicksand in recent weeks, and I wonder, against a really vicious Gators front seven and a really strong secondary, what Jake Fromm's going to be able to do, because he hasn't scared anyone with his arm in several weeks, and he's a guy who came into the year being talked about as a potential first-round draft pick next year. He just hasn't lived up to that so far this year. We know he's talented. We've seen it plenty of times, Um, but they're really going to need him to air the ball out in this game. I think part of the problem is he doesn't have a lot of trust in a young group of receivers after losing several um, veteran guys off of last year's team. I think that's hurting him, but Florida's going to key in on DeAndre Swift and try to stop the run and force Fromm to make some plays down the field. I just don't know if he's going to be able to. I think these Florida defensive backs will be tough for the young Georgia receivers to break free from. I'm kind of nervous about picking the Gators just because – You know, I'm not sure how Kyle Trask will look against a really good Georgia team. I could see this being a pretty low-scoring game, though, with both defenses kind of settling in and and dominating. But I'm going to go Florida. Uh, This burned me last year because I picked the Gators after Georgia kind of looked like they had struggled in recent weeks, and it burned me last year. So obviously I never learned, but I'm going Gators and give me them 23-20. I do think it'll be more of a defensive battle. This isn't a good start, everybody, if you think about how last week went with our agreements and disagreements, because I, for better or worse, am leaning toward Florida as well. Um, I think a large part of that is just how and to whom each of these teams lost. Uh, You know, Florida lost on the road at LSU, and Georgia fell at home to South Carolina, and specifically a South Carolina team that right now is fighting for bowl eligibility, you know, fighting for its very life in terms of the postseason. So I, 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 I think Georgia is a pretender. I, I really have not been impressed with how they've played throughout the season. 
they have the numbers, and I think the defense has done. A, 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 this is not a knock on the defense at all because that Georgia defense is solid. We're basically going to see two of the top three red zone defenses in the country playing in this game, and Georgia is number one. And, you know, I think the thing is, is Georgia's been better at breaking down opponents in the red zone when they have the ball. They're a top five red zone scoring team. So I, I think the Bulldogs have been more consistent, but the Gators have been more resilient this year. They've just, you know, they've fought through more injury issues and and really have shown an ability to to be malleable and to work, you know, roll with the punches. And I think that's going to be a huge, huge in this neutral site game. So I have Florida 28, Georgia 24 with the Gators covering and winning this game outright. Now I'm on pins and needles for that myself. (laughs) So moving on to the second game, maybe we will disagree on this one. Uh, Number nine, Utah heads to Seattle as a three and a half point favorite to take on the Washington Huskies that looked like a preseason Pac-12 North favorite and have crumpled over the course of the, you know, October. So in November, does do things change back around again for Washington? Do they surprise Utah in this home game? Or is this really Kyle Whittingham's chance to continue guiding Utah toward a possible college football playoff berth? You know, it, <laughs> this is a really big game for both teams, I think. Washington, a loss here would inexplicably drop the Huskies to 5-4 and four through nine games, which just seems unbelievable to me to fathom that they could possibly be five and four but also Utah in terms of if you're looking at the um the Pac-12 South race they're tied with USC right now but USC has the advantage of the head-to-head win they can't really afford another loss if they want to come out with the north USC's got a tough schedule the rest of the way in particular they've got to play Oregon um still so I mean there's still opportunities there but this is a big game for both teams I just like Florida and Georgia, I wouldn't take anything I say here with much because I have no confidence in this pick. I had no confidence in Florida over Georgia. I'm taking Washington, and I feel absolutely disgusted by it. I'm putting my faith in Chris Peterson. I think he's still one of the best coaches in college football. They've had an extra week to prepare. Uh, they did look better two weeks ago when they hosted Oregon. They could have very easily come out on top in that game. That came down to the very end and Oregon eked out the win. So I think I just, because I can't really see Washington at five and four, that's hard for my mind to kind of click in. I'm taking the Huskies to beat Utah. I've got no confidence in it. I'm looking something along the lines of 24, 23 in favor of Washington, but this game's a toss up in my opinion. Vegas agrees with it being a really tight spread. Uh, but I'm taking the Huskies just on the desperation factor. I think they got to win. All right. We have some disagreement, everybody. Yes. I am really high on Utah. Honestly, I think that pollsters, if they were looking objectively, would have every right to rank Utah as a top five, top six team right now in the country. They're... Um, You know, they boast one of the top five defenses in the country, and I actually argued this weekend when I covered their game, uh, their big win, that they might have the best defense in the country. Currently, they're allowing only 231 yards and 10.3 points per game against Pac-12 offenses. And, you know, a Utah win coupled with a Trojans loss against Oregon later in the day would give Kyle Whittingham's crew just exactly the sort of jump that they need to step up and make their move for the Pac-12 South heading down the home stretch. And I I think it's going to be a day for Tyler Huntley to shine. He's one of the half dozen most efficient quarterbacks in the country right now. And he's going up against a Huskies team that hasn't been as good as secondaries in seasons past. So I think Utah cruises to a three-touchdown victory on the road, 38-17. Wow, I love it. I, I Like I said, I got no confidence in it. I could easily see what you said come to fruition there. I think the Utes are definitely the better team, but 
I and Chris Peterson, I trust, I guess. Yeah, and that's no knock on Chris Peterson by any means. He's still one of the top five head coaches in the country, no matter what happens with Washington the rest of the way. Five and four, five and five, you know, getting to a bowl game at six and six, however it plays out for them. I'm saying this as a Duck fan. These are kind of wishful thinking <laughs> sort of things. So whatever happens, it, it was kind of a transition year for Washington as we look at this team more and more. That idea that Jacob Eason was just going to be plug-and-play and we could just ignore everything else that was sort of lost around this team, it, 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 it was kind of foolhardy. And we're seeing that with this team as well as with Stanford this year so it it just kind of shows what preseason prognostications might actually be worth other than something to kill the time and fill the copy so with that aside let's move on to game number three we've got a huge one in american athletic conference play uh this is one of only two top 25 games on the slate this week as number 15 SMU puts their undefeated record on the line at number 24 Memphis playing at the Liberty Bowl Stadium. So Memphis is favored by, well, it looks like the line has slid from about a field goal to five and a half points now. So people continue to to bet that one in that direction. But Memphis is favored by, you know, just under a touchdown at this point against an undefeated SMU team. Do you think that the Tigers have what it takes to finally be the team to end this dream season for the Mustangs? I think it's going to be one of the more interesting games of the weekend. You've got two teams that have looked really good this year. Both nearly slipped up last week against lesser opponents. I think you could say that both might have been looking ahead to this big game in the American Athletic Conference with SMU holding off Houston close and then Memphis needing a mini miracle to pull out the win at Tulsa, needing a, a shank 20-whatever-yard field goal to beat the Golden Hurricanes last weekend. So I think it's going to be a really good game. A really good showcase for the American Athletic Conference because this is the ABC primetime game um, that's going to be broadcast everywhere. So a really good showcase for the conference. Two really good football teams. So my hope here, Zach, is we get a barn burner. That's what I'm hoping. I hope it's a game that's just back and forth all night long and really showcases just how good of a conference, how good of a division that these two teams play in. Um, we're both on record as thinking the American might be top to bottom better than the ACC this year, uh, just based on the strength, the relative strength from the very top to the very bottom of the leagues. Um, I think Memphis's secondary is pretty good this year. They're only giving up about 186 yards per game through the air, which is really impressive, and that'll help them against Shane Bouchelle in a really strong passing game for SMU. You know, Bouchelle's been great. He's also thrown seven picks in eight games, so he has been a bit turnover prone. I think that's ultimately going to be the difference. Memphis leans on Brady Wright, Brady White, who's been just as good with 20 touchdowns as Bouchelle, but's only thrown four picks. And then Kenneth Gainwell's been one of the best multi-purpose players in the country as a runner and a pass catcher. Well, I think there's enough in that five and a half point spread to say that SMU covers, because I do think. This is going to be a really good football game, and it's going to be decided by a field goal. I do like Memphis at home to get the win, 38-35. I like what you were talking about with the barn burner, and I think that's exactly what's going to happen with this game. Um, I haven't, you know, I've only seen the point spread so far. I haven't seen a total points yet for this. Um, I haven't, so I, you know, whatever they put for that, bet the over. I, I would just say that right now. I think this is going to be the highest scoring game in the country this week. I could see it topping a combined into triple digits. But, I, you know, I'm confident. I guess I'm kind of in SMU we trust right now. Um, I, I kind of wrote them off a couple of weeks ago, and that was to my peril because they've been one of those teams that's just kind of fly by the seat of their pants lucky. And I think that luck continues at the Liberty Bowl. Um, 
You mentioned that Shane Bouchelle needs to have a huge game against one of the country's 25 best secondaries. And I think at the same time, Kenneth Gainwell is that key to victory for the Tigers. And he's going up against a top 25 SMU run defense. So it's kind of strength versus strength on, on the field with the offenses and the defenses. And so... I think the offenses are going to win all around. We've seen this same sort of barn burner between uh, Memphis and UCF in the past couple of seasons, and I think it's going to be the same sort of game this year between SMU and Memphis. But I have SMU 52, Memphis 48 to get to 100. I love it. Either one. I mean, I, I think we're both anticipating perhaps the best game of the weekend. So that's great for the conference, especially in the showcase it's got. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. Fourth game is the showcase of sorts for the ACC Coastal. And honestly, this kind of speaks to, to how strong the AAC is this year, especially the AAC West versus the ACC in both divisions, really, because once you get past Clemson, there isn't much to get really excited about. So this is, at the same time, a critical divisional matchup. The winner pretty much has the inside track on the division with the tiebreaker in hand and everything that goes with it. So do you think... um, Virginia gets to bowl eligibility and takes the tiebreaker over the Tar Heels as, or do you think North Carolina is going to live up to its billing as a two and a half point favorite? It's so funny that this is such a huge game for the coastal years. We're talking about a five and three and a four and four team as a huge game in the ACC, just to speak to how weak the coastal division has been this year. And that, you know, a lot of times you have, parity in a league and it looks good it doesn't look so good in the coastal you've got everyone kind of right there still fighting for the division crown you've got virginia north carolina virginia tech and pitt all with two losses duke miami and georgia tech with three conference losses everyone's still alive there's been no clear-cut runaway um but at this point in the season i just trust north carolina virginia i think mac brown's doing really good job with a Tar Heels team that was really bad last season. Um, They just find ways to win games. Um, You know, beating Duke last week, they took Clemson down to the wire. Um, And I think the Tar Heels are going to be the team to beat here. I think their defense will fluster Bryce Perkins, who's having a really inefficient year, kind of a disappointing player uh, this season when most thought he would have a huge year. He's only got nine touchdown passes to eight picks. Sam Howell's been a revelation for the Tar Heels as a true freshman, uh, being really efficient, thrown for over 2,000 yards with 22 touchdowns and only five interceptions. I think North Carolina at home covers the spread. I think the the over-under at 47 is 47 and a half is remarkably too high. I think these two defenses will kind of dominate this game, but I think the Tar Heels will win 24-17. 24-17 Tar Heels. Okay, we're getting disagreement, everybody. Because, honestly, the Cavaliers just boast a far better defense than North Carolina. They're 11th in yards allowed, 4th in sacks in the country, 7th in tackles for loss. Um, you know, giving up less than 3 touchdowns a game. And I think especially the fact that they get that pressure at the point of attack is what's going to fluster a freshman quarterback like Sam Howell into making some mistakes and feeling that pressure. So I, I, and I also really like Joe Reed in the return game. I think he's going to get his nation leading third kick return touchdown against 117th ranked North Carolina kick return defense. So I, I, I add that all up and I think Virginia Covers, wins outright uh, 31-23 in large part because they're superior on special teams. All right. We're back to normal again. I like it. All right. Yeah, we keep scaring everybody with that first pick. Well, we're going to move on to the last one. And honestly, I'd have no problem if we were both in agreement on this one because we're talking about number seven Oregon going to the Coliseum to play USC in a battle of division leaders in the Pac-12. 
So, I'll, I'll let you weed this off. Five-point favorites, the Ducks come in on the road. Uh, do you think they end up covering that, John? I do. I know that'll be music to your ears. Um, I think USC's a good team. I really do. I think this game won't be a, a route in favor of the Ducks. I think USC will keep it close, as they've done pretty much all year, even against the better team. Um, it's just... I don't have any faith in USC's defense. Oregon's defense is demonstrably better. So I figured they're going to get more stops than USC. And also Oregon boasts the better offense, right? So I just can't see. I think Justin Herbert will have a bounce back game after being kind of used more as a game manager last week um, against Washington State. I could see him having a big night. But also USC's run defense has given up 189 yards per game, which should be music to C.J. Verdell's ears. I could see him having another monster performance after rolling past Washington State last week. Um, I have been really impressed with Keaton Slovis as USC's quarterback. He's showing real big flashes, but he's still a young guy, and he's going against a really well-coached Ducks defense that I think will only make the difference in this game. Um, I like Oregon to win 38-28. I think USC keeps it close for a while, but Oregon ends up uh, winning by two scores. Yeah, I, I okay. We agree on this one. I'm okay with that. I, I think the big thing, as you said, is that secondary for the Ducks against Slovis. They No team has more interceptions in the country than Oregon's 14 at this point of the year. And that's going to really be the, the thing that carves out the difference against a young quarterback. And, uh, you know, the Ducks survive Washington State at home. They're going to be hungry to make that statement at number seven to show that they are a legitimate team right as we get to that point of the college football playoff selection committee rankings coming out for the first time on the Tuesday after week 10 finishes up. So I, I think you add that all up and uh, Oregon pulls away for that two, two score victory there at the end. I have it 45 31 ducks winning and covering outright, which could be the final nail on Clay Hilton's, coffin honestly if they can't pull out this win this weekend yeah exactly I think at this point USC is a talented enough team to be leading the Pac-12 South at this time of the year and they're a talented enough team that they should be leading it much more convincingly so that's really I think where this sits and this is going to be music to Utah's ears after they take care of business earlier in the day yeah, both Oregon and Utah, by the way, should be huge fans of each other at this point in the season because both are very much alive in the playoff race. And as long as the other two keep winning, both teams will have an opportunity if they enter 11-1 and to make one final statement to the playoff committee by beating another 11-1 and top 10 team in the Pac-12 championship. So both the Utes and Ducks' second favorite team the rest of the year will be the others. Yeah, this feels a lot like uh, when Michigan and Iowa State met at 4-5 in the uh, Big Ten championship game in, I think, it was it 2015 that Michigan State ended up going and getting shut out by Bama? You know, it feels very much like that where that conference championship, if everything aligns and those two teams win out, is going to end up being one of those sort of play-in games. So, yeah, Absolutely. exciting, and I think Oregon's gonna gonna follow through and, and do their part as well this week. Well, on that note, we're gonna take one final break, everybody, before we come back and talk about some upsets, some locks of the week, the garbage we dealt out last week, which hopefully we deal out as little this week as we did last week, and then offering up in true tailgater fare some food and drink ideas. So. Stay tuned. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We're here to talk about some more Week 10 action against the spread. But before we do, we're going to go through our atonement for the week. Our garbage picks of this week actually are pretty slim. We don't have a lot of crow to swallow. Um, I ended up covering or calling five of seven correctly against the spread. I, um, I ended up not buying into that upset special and said Texas would barely cover against TCU. I should have heard that knocking more clearly. 
uh, as John mentioned, when you see an upset special like that, pounce on it. Um, at the same time, I, I've got to talk about SMU Houston, because I said that the Cougars were going to just get blown out. They really outshined the Mustangs' offense for much of the game. Uh, I think when we heard that Derek King was getting redshirted, we kind of wrote off Houston, but Clayton Toon had 407 yards passing on a day when Shane Bouchel was really quite quiet. Toon threw for twice as many yards. Um, obviously, Xavier Jones picked up the slack with 133 yards and two touchdowns for for the Mustangs, and Houston ran out of time in their comeback bid. Um, Kevin Robledo's 33-yard field goal in the fourth quarter ended up sealing the victory for the Mustangs to stay unbeaten, but I certainly didn't see it happening that way against the spread, so... Yeah, it's relatively mild. I've got one really big one to eat. Uh, you talked about the Vegas alarms we talked about in TCU in Texas. I thought I heard um, another Vegas alarm going off in the Penn State-Michigan State game because the Spartans were only five-and-a-half-point dogs at home after looking you know, wildly mediocre through the first seven games of the season, and Penn State entered undefeated, but also coming off kind of an emotional win over Michigan. I thought the Nittany Lions were right for the upset, and boy, Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> that game was never really close. Um, Penn State scored the game's first 28 points before the Spartans got a pity touchdown late in the fourth quarter. Um, so my bad on that one. Penn State looks legit. I mean, they're a legit Big Ten contender. They're still unbeaten. Now they get a week off before a huge Big Ten game that no one saw coming between undefeated Penn State and undefeated Minnesota in two weeks. Yeah, what in the world is that all about? I, I yeah, I, I'm flabbergasted to be honest that the Gophers are as good as they are. But with each passing week, they look more and more convincing. And I wouldn't be surprised if the selection committee rates them even higher than the AP voters and the coaches have, because they're answering the call week after week and putting up twenty, thirty point victories. And you do that enough times even if it is against some of the dregs of the Big Ten, you're still doing it week after week. We saw Wisconsin, you know, drop the ball against Illinois. It's something that can very easily happen, and Minnesota is not letting it happen. So it's going to be a really impressive game against the Nittany Lions there in Minneapolis. Right, they're beating teams that they should beat, but also they're beating them like they should beat them as an undefeated team. So, you know what? Row the boat. Everything's yeah. going, everything's coming up gophers in 2019. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but that's pretty much what's happening in the big 10 West this year. Uh, and I, I, I think for chaos sake, it'd be really fun to see that gophers team continue to do well until they lose the perfect season in the battle for Paul Bunyan's ax. But that's another thing to talk about down the road. Let's talk about some games for this week. Uh, just a couple more before we get into some food and drinking. Uh, what do you have as your upset of the week this week, John? You know, I I thought it was kind of odd that Florida State was only a four-point favorite against Miami this weekend. Um, at home, I think both teams enter four and four, far from preseason expectations. But I think the Seminoles are still iffy up front on the offensive line and Miami's front seven happens to be, you know, the strength of their team. They're only giving up about 106 rushing yards a game. Cam Akers for Florida State's doing his damnedest to have a strong season, despite the fact that he's got no help whatsoever up front. But I think he's going to have trouble finding a running lane against this stout Miami defense. This could be a really, really ugly football game with both defenses kind of stepping up and shut downing pretty shut down and mediocre offenses on the other side of the field. So I think Miami pulls the upset, something along the lines of 17-16. Florida State misses the potential game-winning field goal just for old time's sake. We get a wide right, and the Hurricanes pull the outright upset. That would be really sweet, especially on a weekend where 
it feels really weird to say it, but Miami Florida State is an afterthought game on the schedule. Right, we didn't even pick that game. Like that's not even one of the five big games that we chose. Who would have thought that? I know SMU at Memphis is really a bigger game than Miami Florida State. I mean, even in the ACC, we talked about um, North Carolina and Virginia overshadowing Miami and Florida State. It's wild to think about. Yeah, total mind blower. I honestly, the, the upset pick I saw was BYU is a three and a half point underdog at Utah State. And interestingly, this actually opened as a six and a half point line. So that's been bet down by a field goal already in just a day, couple of days. And so I I, I think that Jordan Love, I, I hate to say it, but he's been playing some abysmal football right now. He's thrown eight touchdowns and nine interceptions through the first seven games for Utah State completing under 60% of his passes, and he has a 118.5 pass efficiency rating. Just not playing to the caliber that we saw was possible last season from him and made him one of those, you know, players that we thought were a player to watch in the preseason. Um, Utah State has really gotten it done by being really disciplined they're top 10 in the country with the fewest penalties and yards lost to penalty flags but that's not going to be enough to beat the cougars and and you know take the old wagon wheel even at home um especially because byu is looking to get jaron hall back at quarterback and he really offers a dynamic element that i think is going to play really well, especially to the fact that BYU has a huge turnover advantage on their side, and that trend is just going to continue as they win outright and beat that spread that just keeps betting further and further down at this point. I wouldn't be surprised by the time this game starts if it's just an even even spread. Yeah, Utah State certainly been disappointing um, in recent weeks. They got absolutely routed by Air Force last week. Uh, not to take anything away from the Falcons because that's a really good team. But, yeah, I like that pick a lot. Um, we've seen BYU. They can play with anybody. They can lose to anyone, too. So maybe a bit dangerous to put any money on the Cougars at this point in the season. But I can definitely see the rationale there. Um, in terms of your lock, Zach, what are you seeing as your lock of the week? You know – I, 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 it's actually a fairly big line, but I think it's a, a rational line. Marshall is a 10.5 point favorite going to Houston to play Rice. And the Owls are lucky to be that close of an underdog in the spread. Like, honestly, part of that is the fact that they're playing at home. So you figure there's three points there. But really, Marshall is at least a two-touchdown favorite in this game. Rice has been outscored by an average of 13.2 points per game so far in their 0-8 start. So, and, you know, Marshall was coming off a big 26-23 win over Western Kentucky that gives them the Conference USA East tiebreaker at this moment and puts them at the top of the division. They've got the tiebreaker over both the Hilltoppers and Florida Atlantic. So, uh, just as, you know, we mentioned in the preseason talking about Conference USA, Marshall is really back in the driver's seat in Conference USA East, it, you know, which is fascinating, especially after seeing Western Kentucky make that sort of out-of-nowhere push there in the first half of the season. Yeah. Things are kind of settling back to normal. And I think Isaiah Green is just going to have a huge day, game against the Owls defense that's given up 240 passing yards and 155 rushing yards per game and currently ranks 117th in opponents' passing efficiency. So teams are just carving them up, and the conference title is well in reach for Doc Holliday's crew, and they're not about to blow it in Houston this week. That's a great pick. Um I saw that and was immediately ready to put money on Marshall. So 100% in agreement there. Um, I went uh, to the Big Ten country. 
I was surprised to see Michigan is only a 17 and a half point favorite at Maryland. I jumped on that on Monday and put some money down on the Wolverines. It's already been bet up to 18 and a half at some books up to 19 already. Um, Maryland's not good. They looked good in the first two weeks of the season. They started two and oh, they're one and five cents and they're getting the crap kicked out of them on a week to week basis. They're coming off a 52 to 10 loss to Minnesota. Um, and I think you're going to see something similar against Michigan, except I'd be surprised if they even managed 10 points against the Wolverines defense. I think Michigan's defense will dominate Maryland, and I think Michigan's offense will wear them down throughout the game. I'm thinking something along the lines of 42 to 7 in favor of the Wolverines, which gives you an easy cover, uh, especially if you grab the line at 17 and a half like I did, but also even up to 19 and a half, even if it I expect it to end up somewhere around 21 or 22 points when it's all said and done, which is more like it should be. But 17 and a half was easy money. I think Michigan rolls. Yeah, I I could totally see that happening. Maryland was really sort of a paper tiger at the beginning of the season. And once the, once the fourth wall fell away, there was, you know, nothing left to show with that team. So that's a really solid pick as well as a lock there. So good luck. I I I I I think you've got got a good option there, like you said, especially at seventeen and a half, but even two or three points higher, that's still a great choice. Shifting gears, let's think about our stomachs. What are you eating this weekend, John? You know, um I've been in the mood recently for a good steak. So I've got, you know, Alabama's got a bye week this week. I've been promising my fiance that I'd make steak soon. So that's where I'm going this weekend. I'm going to rock the reverse sear method, which has honestly changed my entire life when it comes to eating steak. So pop them in the, I've got a cast iron skillet that I'll season up really well, season the steaks, throw them in the oven on high heat in the cast iron uh, on the low heat, not high heat, sorry to confuse everyone, low heat for probably 30 to 45 minutes, flipping them about halfway and then searing them for about 60 seconds on each side on the top uh, with butter and stuff like that. And then I always like to do is I like to pull the steaks off and rest them in some aluminum foil for a good 10 minutes or so, which gives me enough time to saute some mushrooms and onions in that same pan in the st- steak juice um, that's formulated from the cooking of the steaks. So I like to saute mushrooms and onions in that pan like that and then throw those as a nice little side to go with the steaks. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Nice. Always good to get a good deglaze off that pan. Um, Personally, I'm going to be cooking up some fried chicken. I'm really craving a good batch of fried chicken. Um, Do up a nice beer season batter, do a spicy flour coat, and just... Do it up right. Fry up some parts. I'm also looking to get in some tenderloins and, and, and frying up some some good tenders. Just keeping it all around with, you know, a really tall bottle of Frank's Red Hot, some sweet chili sauce as well I've got here in the house, um, some some a couple of different flavors of secret aardvark. Uh, so, yeah, just some some great, you know, hot, cold, you know, hot out of the oil, obviously, fried chicken is always awesome but you know even at the end of the day if you get a good crisp coat on it it's nice even as it's gone cold to just sit there and munch on it so i think that's really where i'm gonna go with the food how about drinking john what are you looking to drink with those steaks i'm taking a page out of your book and going away from beer this week uh i always like to have a good whiskey when i make steak uh that just goes down the best for me so I'm going to grab a bottle of Knob Creek from my local ABC store. Big fan of the Knob Creek small batch or the single barrel, whichever you're into. Both are around 100 to 120 proof. So they both got some bite that'll get the job done with what you're trying to do. Uh, They pair really well with steak, um, especially a bourbon that kind of, you know, dries your mouth out a little bit because it's tart and strong. And then you've got the juice of the steaks kind of reinvigorating that. So it just makes the steak taste that much better. So that's where I'm going this weekend. Nice. That's good and classic. I love it. You can even add just like a tiny splash of that to your mushrooms and onions and just totally take that over the top as well. So this is why I like to talk to you. Former chef here. You got all the secrets. I'm all down. Yep. You know, a little bit of butter in there, a little bit of whiskey. You're set. Um, For me, 
my wife, as I've said, is back in town. She's actually back in town this weekend. So um, one of her favorites that we were introduced to this past summer by my dad's partner is a brandy slush. She's got the whole recipe for it. So I'm going to trust, you know, entrust that to her. Um, or at least to her to get that recipe to me in time, but basically like a frozen brandy and citrus juice concoction, um, you know, you scoop it out with an ice cream scoop and kind of, you know, splash over top of it with some kind of citrusy soda. I, I really like squirt getting that grapefruit kind of tang to it, but you know, Sprite or seven up or whatever, just to get some good carbonation. Um, they can be really dangerous depending on how you've mixed up the <laughs> slush concoction and how much brandy you've put into it because they go down really smooth. They go down really quickly and you can quickly recognize that you've had four or five of them and everything's starting to spin. So it's one that I'm really excited to have because I haven't in a while, but it's one that I really need to make sure I'm doing responsibly and alternating some caffeine throughout the day. That sounds phenomenal. Sounds like you're going to need a great nap on Saturday is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, I might have to to take off covering those mid-afternoon games and just, you know, eat a good lunch, get some early games in, and then uh, doze pleasantly before we look at the night games and top 25 projections. So, Fairly weak slate, so if you're going to take an afternoon nap, everybody, this might not be the worst time to do it. Yeah, it's not something I would advocate every weekend, but if you can't binge watch every game that's going to be there and... I believe me, I, I love to binge watch. I've got three TVs set up here at my house to watch with and an emergency laptop if I need to put on a fourth game. So I understand the value of binge watching, but sometimes you need to just also make sure that you're, you are you have the right games to watch. And if it's just not there, pick and choose those moments. Take, you know, a couple of hours with the family or just with, your favorite pillow and blanket and you know take a nice autumn nap they can be really quite nice i mainly take them on sundays but saturday might just have to be one for it this weekend as well yep sounds great on that note everybody i think that's a great uh seg into our saying goodbye for the week uh, we'll be back again next Wednesday, hopefully talking about more chaos that's happened despite this looking like a really quiet slate of games. Um, so with that, enjoy the rest of your week leading up to week 10. If your team's playing on Halloween, may it be more treat than trick for you. Uh, it, you know, we'll it, hopefully enjoy some exciting action in this first weekend of November, and we'll be back again to talk about it next Wednesday. Thanks again for tuning in to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everyone. <laughs>